Let us pray. Lord, may the words of our mouth, the meditation of our hearts, be found acceptable in your sight, for you, O Lord, are our rock and our redeemer. Amen. Well, we have safely arrived in week five of our series on 1 Timothy. One more to go. 1 Timothy is all about how to prepare for the ultimate job interview. That's what I have told you. In other words, how to be prepared to serve God in a great way in your life as a disciple. I love this book as I keep reading it and rereading it, and I enjoyed listening again to chapter 5, which I've read many times, and some of you, I'm sure, no doubt, saw it, heard it, read it, and wondered, I wonder what that has to do with today's church. There are a lot of challenges in this chapter. Let me remind you again that Paul wrote this book to, uh, wrote 1 Timothy to instruct a rather timid young man, Timothy, maybe in his late 20s, early 30s, to show him how to be a dynamic leader, a dynamic disciple in the church of God. And you've got to remember something, too. And I hope that as you heard these words and read along with them this morning, that this book talks about things that relate specifically to the culture in which it is written. For example, a few weeks ago, I talked about, or Paul talked about, the role of women in leadership in the church of Ephesus. That was something that was going on back then. Paul also referenced first century attitudes towards the consumption of alcohol. Did you get it? He said that we ought to stop doing what? Drinking so much water and have a little bit of wine. We'll save that for communion. That's an attitude that's changed over the years as we have seen the damage that alcohol can do in a person's life. Next week, we're going to talk about the role of slaves because in the society in which Timothy lived, over 30% of the workforce were actually slaves. Now, it's our job as we read God's Word, particularly these passages, to find out what the underlying principles are being taught in these passages so we can apply the truths of Scripture in our daily lives and as we minister as disciples here in our own church. And today we come across another one of those passages which on the surface strikes us a little odd. It talks about the care of widows, which was a very pressing issue in the first century church. And since women, as always, seemed to outlive men, and because there was no life insurance in those days, no social security system in place, Women, widows in particular, often found themselves in a very vulnerable situation, totally unable to take care of themselves. And on top of that, the Greek word widow doesn't refer only to women whose husbands had died. It refers to women who are left alone for any reason, death, divorce, desertion. And evidently, there were many such women in the first century, and so what the church had done is they'd set up a system governed by their local elders, a detailed system of providing care for people in genuine need. Now, I'll be honest with you, I know of no 21st century American church that does this in exactly the same way that Paul describes here. Part of the reason is because of things like life insurance alimony, social security. 
Yeah, and the fact that women are able to enter the workforce, which they were unable to do in the first century times, is kind of not necessary in many cases. And since life expectancy for men has increased, and women tend to marry men close to their age, even young widows whom Paul discusses are often not nearly as common today either. That we don't have a list of widows that we fully support financially here at this church, because in this day and age, support often is not typically necessary. However, we still have this underlying responsibility. I mean, what do we see underlining what Paul is teaching here? That's to live according to the principles found in these words. And the principle is this. You and I, all of us collectively, have an obligation to help people who are in need, especially those with the greatest need and those who are most vulnerable. So today in front of us here in chapter 5, Paul talks about how to deal with widows, you know, women who are left alone for one reason or another. And he's also talking about leaders in the church who get themselves into trouble. And there are three underlying principles that I want to deal with this morning that we need to commit ourselves to. Here's the very first principle. The first principle is responsibility. You and I as disciples of Jesus Christ have some responsibility here. Uh, When Paul told Timothy to take care of these widows in his congregation to do it in an organized fashion, he was saying, you need to take the responsibility for other people. Now, I don't know if you know the difference between a leader and what we might call a 'er ne'er-do-well, but I would say a 'er ne'er-do-well is this. That's the person who runs around and says, it's not my job. It's not my problem. Somebody else caused this mess. A leader says, if not me, then who? If not now, then when? A leader, a disciple of Jesus Christ, takes responsibility. You'll see this quote on the screen by John Maxwell. He used the words catalysts to describe people who get things done. He said, catalysts are not consultants. They don't recommend a course of action they take responsibility for making it happen. In other words, they don't just sit around and tell other people how to do it. They actually go out and they do it. I want to suggest to you today that as disciples, we are called to be catalysts. Now, a good example of this from the Bible would be Nehemiah. He was a slave living in Babylon. But when he heard about his home city, his beloved Jerusalem, that it was in utter chaos and utter ruins, he became a catalyst for going and rebuilding the walls around Jerusalem. Disciples take responsibility, not for helping themselves and climbing their way up the ladder, but helping other people who are in need. Simply put, leaders, disciples, take care of other people. And Paul talks about three different ways we can do this. Number one, he said, first of all, take care of those people who are closest to you. Verse 8 says, if anyone does not provide for his relatives, and especially for his immediate family, he is denied the faith and is worse than an unbeliever. That's, that's pretty straightforward. You know, when we hear these words today, we typically think of something like a deadbeat dad who does not provide for his kids or his wife. And while Paul's words would certainly apply to the situation, in the context of this chapter, he is referring here to children not caring for their parents 
and brothers not caring for their sisters. Now, in the, in the Greek, the phrase really is, for his own. We need to take care of those who are our own, our family, our close servants, our close friends. And Paul is saying, just look at those people who live closest to you. If you have means and somebody close to you is in need, you don't have to sit around and wonder whether or not God wants you to do something. If you can help, what does he say? Help. You offer the help. 1 John 3.17 says, If anyone has material possessions and sees his brother in need but has no pity on him, how can the love of God be in him? Here's the second area in which we are to help. We are to take care of people who can't take care of themselves. And Paul uses a phrase here in some translations. He said, If these are widows indeed, widows indeed, he really is talking about people who were truly in need, who had nowhere else to turn to, who had no one else. And we see that also in verse 3 and in verse 16. It says, if any woman who is a believer has widows in her family, she should help them. Not let the church be burdened with them so that the church can help the widows who are really in need. Now, his point is that there ought to be some system in our own disciples' lives or in a church family to look out for people who really have no one else to look out for them, to make sure that everybody is covered in love. Now, churches have typically have opportunities to help lots and lots of people every week. I would say that it would be a strange week indeed that if at least one or two people did not call our church office or actually come knocking at uh, the church door asking for help. Now, I am going to tell you that we need to practice discernment. And what I'm about to say may sound kind of hard, but sometimes uh, people in need are in need because their need is self-inflicted. They don't have the money for their rent. They don't have money for whatever because they spend it on other things like alcohol and tobacco and drugs. But in the same way, some people also don't work because they won't work. And they're not willing to take responsibility for their lives. It would be wrong for us to enable that kind of self-destructive behavior. It's equally wrong, though, to turn our backs on people who are in a desperate situation and desperately need help to get through. And I tell you, I struggle with that all the time. You know, in 25-plus years of being a pastor and having people ask for help, you know, I always say, Lord, give me wisdom and give me discernment to know what to do. See, on the one hand, Paul said in 1 Thessalonians, if a man will not work, neither shall he eat. But on the other hand, we are to practice compassionate generosity for people who legitimately cannot take care of themselves. That's why you and I need to do like James says, if any of you lacks wisdom, if any of you lacks discernment, let him ask. God will give it to you and he'll give it to you abundantly. Now, here's the third thing. Paul also says, take care of those who take care of you. He's talking about caring for widows. He talks about a church's relationship. He says in verse 17, the elders who direct the affairs of the church well are worthy of double honor, especially those whose work is preaching and teaching. I love that verse. Don't you? I mean, just reading that verse, especially those whose work is preaching and teaching. Anybody want to give me an amen to that? Okay, good. Glad to get a witness now. I'm just kidding. Kind of. 
<laughs> well, the word honor here, which Paul also uses in verse 3 about widows, refers to respect. It refers to regard. It even has to do with financial support. He's saying, in effect, make it a point to show honor to people who serve well, particularly if they are your leaders. Now, this applies not only to the person who happens to be up front today preaching, but someone who sits up in the back playing. Uh, It applies to anybody involved in getting things done week after week after week in the ministry of the church. Now, do you know what causes burnout in the ministry? You ever think about that? What causes people in ministry to burn out? I'll let you in on a little secret. It's not the hours. And it's not the pay. It's often the lack of appreciation. Now, understand, I get a lot of encouraging feedback. I'm not here to complain to you guys today. But I know a lot of people who serve faithfully week after week, cleaning the church, ushering, setting up the communion table, opening the church, locking the church, Preparing Sunday school lessons, practicing instruments, learning new music, coming up with activities for kids, taking time off from their regular job to go on a youth retreat. And some of those folks never, ever received the honor due to them. Now, I've heard people say, well, they shouldn't be doing it just for the recognition. Now, point taken. But I want to tell you, very point blank, friends, if you are on the receiving end of their ministry, you have a responsibility to show gratitude and to show honor to those people who have served you in that fashion. Now, again, this is not an indirect request for you to pat me on the back, because quite honestly, thank God, my cup is full and it overflows. But it is a direct command that all of us, Look at those who provide spiritual leadership in our lives, whether it's through children's ministry, youth ministry, whether it's women's ministry, whether it's the church at large, and find a way to give them the honor and the respect that's due. See, a mature believer appreciates what other people do, and they know how to show it. So we live, first of all, by responsibility. Second of all, here's our second principle. It's called accountability. When Paul is talking about the widows that the church will support, he's very specific as to who to look for. Did you catch that? He said that the widow needs to be over 60 years old. She's been faithful to her. She has been faithful to her husband. She's well known for her good deeds. In other words, there was some accountability involved. Later, when he talks about elders and church leaders who get themselves, you know, in a ditch, He talks about a system of accountability. He said, don't entertain accusations about people unless you've got two or three witnesses. See, that holds people accountable. It makes it difficult to make an unsubstantiated allegation. I remember a guy coming and seeing me a number of years ago. He says, Pastor, there are an awful lot of people in this church who think a blah, blah, blah. I said, a lot of people. I said, how many is that? He said, well, you know, a lot of people. And I said, well, this church has over 3,000 members. So a lot of people, let's see, a lot of people for me would be, oh, about a 1,000 or more. He goes, oh, gosh, no, not that many. I said, so what do you mean by a lot of people? I said, 500? Oh, no. Um, A couple hundred people? 
Well, well no, he's away. He asked. I said, well, you said a lot of people. I want to know how many. Uh, I said, what, um, 10 or 15? Well, I don't know if it's that many people. I said, well, is it just you? Now, I'm not saying that one person is not important. But if you're going to come up and raise allegations about someone else, you better have those other people with you. It holds you accountable. It holds people accountable. Verse 20, it says, Those who sin are to be rebuked publicly so that others may take warning. That doesn't mean when a, a leader fails that we're to drag them up front and shame them and humiliate them and put a giant A on them or whatever. It just means that we are to deal without pretending that stuff never happens. Verse 21, I charge you in the sight of God and Christ Jesus and the elect angels to keep these instructions without partiality and without favoritism. See, when we think about a leader failing sometimes, we think more of a moral failure or some sort of a financial misconduct, but that's not where accountability ends. This is all aspects of this person's behavior. Several years ago, I consulted a church where a young man was being asked down, asked to step down from being the youth worker at that church because he, he had a really bad habit of speaking very harshly to the young people in the church, especially when they had done something bad. Now, obviously, that's not a good thing, and it needed to be dealt with. The problem was that the pastor in this church also had an extremely explosive temper, and he yelled and screamed at everybody. But was anybody asking him to step down? No. You see, the rules were different for him. That's unacceptable. Godly leaders need to understand that the rules apply to them the same as they apply to everybody else. Godly disciples know how that works in the kingdom of God. They wouldn't have it any other way. They expect accountability, and they demand, demand accountability. I don't know if you've ever heard the phrase RHIP. Anybody know what RHIP is? Rank has its privileges. And that may be true in terms of... Uh, pay or perks, but it's not, it's not true in terms of character and behavior. We're all accountable. We are responsible and we are accountable. Here's the third thing. It's called inevitability. Inevitability. Now, what I mean by this is that we need to understand that eventually the scales will balance and truth will win out. It's inevitable. You know, people who get bent out of shape about things, sometimes I, I'm prone to say, you know, just wait. It'll all settle up, settle up. Verses 24 and 25. The sins of some men are obvious, reaching the place of judgment ahead of them. The sins of others trail behind them. In the same way, good deeds are obvious, and even those, and even those that are not cannot be hidden. Paul is saying that eventually everything that you and I do is going to come to light. There are some who it seems like they've built some really successful lives, but it's kind of built on a a house of cards, and eventually it's going to fall. And there are some people who work and work and work, and it seems like they don't have any success visible to the naked eye, but someday people are going to say, look what that person accomplished. You know, pastors sometimes love to preach on Numbers chapter 32-23. It says, be sure your sin will find you out. That's what Paul is saying here, too. He said, you're, you know, your bad is going to find you out, but guess what? Your good is going to find you out, too. See, when Jesus told that story about guys who were building a house and talking about the guy who built on the rock, 
and the foolish man who built on sand, he said the point is that the foundation of both structures will eventually become obvious. That's the principle of inevitability. What you reap, you will sow. That has played out so many different megachurches, so many big parachurch ministries. Some are built to last, some are not. But I want to caution you, let's not be pointing our fingers at ministries and leaders. It's better always to take an inward look at ourselves and look at the foundational aspects of our own lives and consider how this principle of inevitability works with you. Let me ask you this question. You just think about this for a moment. Is there an area in your life, not in the person sitting next to you or behind you or in front of you, whatever, but in your personal life, is there an area of your life that needs reinforcement, that needs some stabilization, that needs some work? I mean, are you over-leveraged financially, for example? I mean, eventually it's going to catch up with you unless you do something now to change the inevitability. Or is your marriage or your relationship to your family on shaky ground? Well, now is the time to make every effort to build it into something good. Or is your spiritual life almost non-existent? Are you merely kind of going through the motions without much emotion? I mean, now is the time to get serious about devotion and obedience. I don't know if you remember back the series we did on called Emails from Jesus. We talked about the seven churches in Revelation. Remember the church in Sardis? He said to the church in Sardis, I know your deeds. You have a reputation for being alive, but you are dead. Wake up. Strengthen what remains and is about to die. Friends, people who play fast and loose with the principle of inevitability need to hear the words of Jesus. It's time to wake up. It's time to focus on what really matters and change the direction of your life and the direction of your discipleship. The disciples of Jesus all have this in common. They're going where they need to go because their lives are moving in the right direction. Disciples of Jesus Christ always have their feet pointed in the direction of the cross. Through their eyes, they're always looking toward Jesus. They're living and moving in the right direction because they are founded on biblical principles. They're moving and living in the right direction because they believe truly that Jesus came into this world to suffer, to die, and save them from their sins. People who are really living and moving as disciples also learn some of the principles in the Bible to live by, including the three that we've looked at today. Think about these one more time. That principle of responsibility, taking care of other people. I mean, if not me, who? If not now, when? Be a catalyst in taking care of other people. That principle of accountability. We expect other people to be accountable, and we demand accountability from ourselves, and we hold ourselves to the same standard as everyone else. Expect it from others. Demand it from yourself. And inevitability, that which your life is built on, will eventually become obvious. So now is the time to make sure that your life is built on the solid foundation of your life in Jesus Christ in obedience to his word. This is where all great disciples are going. That on which you build your life eventually becomes obvious. And how do you do this? It's by staying focused on the center of your faith, 
your faith in Jesus Christ as your Lord and Savior. May it be so for Jesus' sake. Amen.